0: I want you to consider for a moment the greatest military leaders in history. Consider Alexander the Great, Caesar Augustus, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, and each of these great military leaders, these brilliant generals, mounted their stallions and they wielded their swords and they conquered the world, didn't they? They went and they conquered the world. Their kingdoms were built on battlefields covered with the blood of their enemies. Every one of them. They attained, they attained their, their empires by force. But without exception, every one of their kingdoms has long since vanished, hasn't it? None of those kingdoms are still around today. They've all vanished. They've all eventually collapsed. Meanwhile, the kingdom of Jesus Christ still continues to grow every single year. Isn't that remarkable? Every other kingdom has fallen in is ancient history, but the kingdom of Jesus Christ continues to grow. And we ask, how is that possible? Well, it's, it's possible because Jesus Christ's kingdom is a completely different kind of kingdom. Amen? His kingdom is different from the ground up. When it was time for Jesus to be glorified, he didn't mount a mighty war stallion. Instead, he mounted a humble little donkey. When it was time for Jesus to be glorified, he didn't wield a sword. Instead, he carried the sins of the world on his shoulders. When it was time for Jesus to be glorified, he didn't build his kingdom on the spilled blood of his enemies. In fact, he shed his own blood and gave his own life and said, this body of mine is for you. It's for you. That's what he did to build his kingdom. So what is Jesus' secret sauce? What sets his kingdom apart? Well, if you look at the center of the other kingdoms that have been built in the history of humankind, you'll find that the other kingdoms have at the very center of them a a very gifted leader. Or maybe a, a very wealthy aristocrat. Or possibly there's a war machine at the hub, at the center of those other kingdoms. But at the center of Jesus' kingdom, you'll find something quite different. At the center of the kingdom of heaven, you'll find a cross. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. In John 12, in the hours after riding his borrowed donkey into Jerusalem, Jesus tells his crowd of listeners in verses 23 and 24, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it does what? Produces many seeds. And in verse 27, Jesus is transparent with his followers. We saw this last Sunday. He cries out in verse 27, Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Isn't that awesome? As he reflects on this beautiful verse, Warren Wiersbe shares this interesting insight. He he writes, In the hour of suffering and surrender. If we can put that up. In the hour of suffering and surrender, there are only two prayers that we can pray. Either, Father, save me, or Father, glorify Thy name. Isn't that right? And Jesus knew that within a few short days, he would be facing the most excruciating pain that any human being has ever had to face. He would be facing this excruciating death. And so his human side wanted to cry out, save me, Father, deliver me. But he caught himself and instead said, Father, above all else, I want to fulfill the purpose for which you placed me on this planet. And even more than that, I just want to glorify you. I want to glorify your name. And I got to thinking about you and me. We go through pains in this life, don't we? Sometimes we're dealing with a a sickness. Sometimes we're dealing with cancer in the family. And and our knee-jerk reaction is to pray, God, heal me. God, heal them. We go through some crud in life and we don't like what we're going through. And our knee-jerk reaction is to pray, God, deliver me. And then I wonder if at times, like Jesus, we catch ourselves and say, you know, on second thought, Father, if I need to go through this stuff, if I need to go through this illness more than anything else, I just want to fulfill the purpose for which you put me on this globe. And I want you, O Father, to be glorified. Father, glorify your name. What a glorious prayer. Father, glorify your name. In verse 28, God the Father responded to Jesus' prayer. It's the third time during Jesus' ministry uh, that the Father spoke in an audible voice from heaven. At Jesus' baptism, remember the Father spoke from heaven. As the Holy Spirit was descending, the Father said, Oh, this is my beloved Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. And then He said the exact same thing when He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. With Peter and James and John. And he's there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He appears with Moses and Elijah. And the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. And then the Father adds one more short sentence. Listen to Him. That's what He tells Peter, James, and John. Listen to Him. And here God speaks for the third time from heaven. And what does He say here in John 12, 28? As Jesus' crucifixion is approaching, the Father says, I have glorified My name. And I will glorify it again. Well, that's where we pick up today in verse 29 of John chapter 12. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. Beginning in verse 29. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said, said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told him, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. But put your trust in the light when you still have it, so that you may become sons of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. May God bless us as we study his word today. Well, in verse 29, you look at that verse again, and it's really a a rather perplexing verse, because the Father speaks from heaven... A verse later, Jesus says, this voice is for your benefit more than for mine. Yet it says there that they couldn't understand the voice, right? You look at verse 29, when the Father spoke to Jesus from heaven, his words weren't understandable to everyone. Some people said, well, it's kind of like thunder. And then other people recognized it is a voice, but they couldn't quite make out the words, so they said it must be the voice of an angel, They didn't quite get it. And then Jesus chimes in in verse 30, saying, This voice was for your benefit, not for mine. Even though the crowd couldn't understand every word of what God the Father said to Jesus, what they could understand was more for their benefit than it was for Jesus. Jesus knew why he had been born, he understood his God given assignment, and he was convinced that the very least, uh, the very best way uh, for the Father's name to be glorified was for him to lay down his life for the sins of the world, but the crowd still didn't get it, did they? It was still over their heads. They didn't get it. In verse 31 and 32, Jesus points out three things that are about to happen. Number one, the world is about to be judged. Number two, the prince of this world will be driven out. And number three, Jesus will be lifted up. And when he's lifted up, he'll draw All men to himself. Let's look at each of those three things that Jesus says are about to happen. Number one, he says in verse 31, the world is about to be judged. Say that with me. The world is about to be judged. Sometimes Jesus gets accused of talking out of both sides of his mouth because you look at a verse like John 3:17 when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus there in chapter 3 he says for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him amen but then you fast forward to John 9:39 and Jesus tells the Pharisees in Jerusalem for judgment I have come into the world and then here in John 12:31 Jesus tells the crowd in Jerusalem now is the time for judgment on this world So we find ourselves kind of scratching our heads and saying, Jesus, which is it? Did you come to judge or did you not come to judge? Did Jesus come to judge or not? Well, the answer is. Yes. Did Jesus come to judge? The answer is no. What? During his first coming. Jesus did not come to judge. But the Bible is very clear that when we get to the end of human history and we look back with the gift of hindsight, we will see that Jesus came to earth not one, but two times. The first time he came to save, when he returns in glory, he will come to judge. In the Old Testament, it's called the day of the Lord. In the New Testament, it's talked about as the second coming of Christ. But Jesus will return. And so when it comes down to it, did Jesus come to judge during his first coming? No. But remember what we talked about in our study of John chapter 9, and I believe this is the exact wording I gave you back a month or so ago when we studied John chapter 9. It goes like this. We'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus came into the world to offer salvation, not judgment. You with me so far? But if you refuse to let him save you, one day he will judge you. Mercy triumphs over judgment, but if you reject God's mercy, the only thing left for you is judgment. It makes sense, doesn't it? If you reject Jesus' free gift of mercy, the only thing left for you is judgment. So does mercy triumph over judgment? Absolutely. But if you remove mercy from the equation, the only thing left for you is is judgment, right? And so it goes like this. We're going to take that a step further. The cross of Jesus Christ is the dividing line between God's mercy and God's wrath. Between God's grace and God's judgment. So what side of the line you fall on has everything to do with how you respond to the cross. So this came to me this morning. I think it will be a blessing to you. I thought of judgment coming at me like a runaway freight train. That's judgment, isn't it? Judgment is coming after you like a runaway freight train because the Bible is very clear that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So as judgment bears down on me like a runaway freight train, there's only one thing that will stop that freight train. And it is the cross of Jesus Christ planted firmly on the tracks. Amen. So when that freight train is coming, if it hits the cross because I've reached out at the cross to the mercy and grace that Jesus Christ offers, I will be saved from judgment. But if I come to the cross and I say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with your grace or mercy, I'm going to face the wrath and the judgment of that freight train that's bearing down on me. That's what the cross does. It stops the runaway train. Thank you, Jesus, for that offer of grace. The world is about to be judged, even at his first coming. The cross is the dividing line between forgiveness and judgment, between God's wrath and God's grace. Jesus, number two, Jesus says the cross, excuse me, the prince of this world will be driven out. Say that with me. The prince of this world will be driven out. I think you need to say that like you mean it. The prince of this world will be driven out. Anybody excited about that? Who's the prince of this world? Yeah, Satan, the devil. That's just another name for the devil. The prince of this world will be driven out. So Jesus is saying, not only does the cross result in condemnation for those who reject it, the cross of Jesus Christ also seals Satan's fate. Isn't that good? It seals his fate. Interestingly, when Jesus was crucified, Satan thought he had won. Think about it from Satan's perspective. The son of God is dying on a cross. And he's thinking back over the last 48 hours or so. Hot damn, I did it. He can cuss because he's the devil. I'm not allowed to do that, but I was just quoting him. He's looking back at the last 48 hours and saying, look what I did, man. One of Jesus's chosen 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot, I filled him with myself. And he betrayed Jesus. (laughs) Ha Got you, Jesus. And then he looks at what he did to those Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. You know, Satan was whispering in their ear when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. And he was whispering in their ear, crucify him, crucify him, tell Pilate to crucify him. And what did they tell Pilate to do? They told Pilate to crucify him. And then he can't believe it. There is Jesus dropping his head, dying on the cross. He thought he had won And so Satan and the the demons in hell were probably celebrating like it was New Year's Eve and the Super Bowl and July 4th all rolled into one. They thought they had won. But what actually happened? What appeared to be Satan's victory was actually his defeat. Because out of the cross would flow the greatest good ever to come to the history of the world. Over the next 2,000 years, billions of men, women, and children who Satan was convinced were all in his hands would be snatched out of his hands and enter the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. And Satan himself would one day be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. He thought he had won, but he had lost miserably when Jesus died on that cross. Yes, Satan is still running around the earth like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But make no mistake about it, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the roaring lion is a toothless lion. Amen? He can make a whole lot of noise. He can stir up a whole lot of trouble, but he cannot snatch a single follower of Christ out of Jesus' hands. Isn't that awesome? So the next time he starts roaring, you just tell him, I know you're toothless. Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Because of the cross, he is a defeated, defeated foe. Number three, Jesus says this also will happen. He says this in verse 32. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. When the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. This is the third time that Jesus has spoken about being lifted up. Back in chapter 3, as he was speaking to Nicodemus, he said in verses 14 and 15, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one that I claim to be. So what does Jesus mean when he speaks of being lifted up? Well, he's referring to being crucified, isn't he? He's referring to the cross. That's how people in the crowd would have understood Jesus's words, because in his day, being lifted up from the earth was another way of saying being crucified. It was just another way of talking about crucifixion. It was an idiom for crucifixion. And just in case the readers of John's gospel missed that little subtlety, John tells us in verse 33, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, I don't want you to miss what Jesus says he's going to do when he's lifted up. Look again at verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, I'll do what? I'll draw all men. Ladies, that includes you too. All mankind, all humankind, I'll draw all men and women to myself. Jesus makes it clear that he won't just hang out waiting for people to come to him. That's what most Christians do in their churches. They open the door and cross their fingers, hope people will come. Aren't you glad Jesus Christ didn't do that? He took the initiative. He didn't just hang on the cross and say, well, when you get around to it, here I am. He actually draws all people to himself. We could paraphrase Jesus's words this way. When I am hanging on the cross, it'll be magnetic. Men, women and children from every tongue, tribe and nation will be drawn to me to receive God's unconditional love and grace. Isn't that awesome? He's going to draw us to himself. Well, surprise, surprise, we find out in verse 34 that the crowd was confused by Jesus' words. Once again, went right over their heads. They point out to Jesus what they had learned from the Old Testament. They had learned from the Old Testament that when the Christ comes, he'll set up an earthly kingdom and remain forever, which leads them to ask two questions. Uh, Question number one, Jesus, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up and crucified? That doesn't make any sense based on what we've learned from the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah's kingdom. And then number two, who is this son of man if he's not who we think he is? So the Jewish crowd knew that the title son of man was used in the Old Testament book of Daniel, referring to the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. So what Jesus was saying didn't make sense to them. It didn't jive with their favorite Old Testament scriptures about the coming Messiah. Uh, How many of you have favorite Bible verses? Okay, Every hand should go up. If you don't have any favorites, get some favorites. We all have favorites, and usually it's the uplifting, motivational, happy promises of God, right? We all love Romans 8.28. It's my favorite verse. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to their purpose. We all love uh, Philippians 1.13, don't we? It's a great verse. If God is for us. Who can be against us? We all love Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. We love those positive verses. Some of the others that talk about judgment and wrath and my own sin, we don't memorize those as quickly, do we? Well, the Jews were no different. They had their favorite scriptures in the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah who would finally deliver them from Rome. And so they memorized these scriptures. They knew these scriptures. They loved these scriptures. Scriptures like Daniel 7.14 saying that Christ's dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. They loved Ezekiel because Ezekiel talked about the new son of David, the new king that would fall in David's line. This new king, David, will be king over them and they will have one shepherd and he will be their prince forever. They loved this prophecy about the Messiah from the Psalms in Psalm 89 God will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. And so they knew these scriptures. They loved these scriptures and they just didn't understand how the scriptures they loved about what the Messiah's kingdom would be like, how they could possibly jive with what Jesus is saying here. They knew that the Messiah would establish an everlasting kingdom. They knew that he was supposed to set up this throne and and rule forever. So they basically say, Jesus, what are you talking about? Who is this son of man whose kingdom will be crucified before it even begins? They didn't understand. I love how Chuck Swindoll responds to this. Listen to this insight. He writes, the crowd's challenge reflects a theological problem concerning the Messiah, which really persists among Jews even today. The Messiah described in the Old Testament is a warrior king who will vanquish Israel's foes, lead them into prosperity and rule the throne of David forever. Yet he is also a suffering servant who will die on behalf of his people. How can a dead man vanquish any foe and rule from any throne? That's a good question, isn't it? These are the scriptures we love. He's supposed to rule forever. But also we know some other scriptures are talking about him suffering and dying. How do we reconcile these two? And this is something I didn't know before I read this. Insight from Chuck Schwindel. he goes on to write, the crowds are to solve the conundrum. Many Jews theorized, as many do today, that the Messiah would be two individuals acting in concert. Did you know this? I didn't know this. The Jews in Jesus's day and many today believe that they're going to be two Messiahs. Huh? Interesting. The Jews in Jesus' day hadn't considered the possibility that a single individual might die on behalf of his people and then rise from the grave to become their everlasting king. And so, interestingly, Jews then and Jews today, to some extent at least, not all of them, but many Jews believed that there would be this one Messiah, Messiah number one, we'll call him, who will come to suffer and die, and then at his side will be Messiah number two, who will live and rule eternally. Interesting. Interesting. And I got thinking about this insight, and I I might be off base on this, but go with me on this little nugget. Maybe it's true. We read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus descends into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday riding what? A donkey. But what does Matthew tell us? He adds one extra detail. He tells us there were actually two donkeys. And so there was the foal of the donkey that Jesus rode, and then the foal's mother was with him. So I imagine this as Jesus is on the little one, And then tied by a rope to that little foal's bridle is the mama. And she's in tow as Jesus is descending into Jerusalem. Two donkeys. What if Jesus was making a subtle statement as he descended into Jerusalem? Notice there's two donkeys, but only one rider. The larger of the donkeys is riderless. I want you to know, those of you who think there are going to be two messiahs, there's actually only one messiah. And I am the one Messiah. I have come to be the suffering servant, but I will conquer death and I will also be the soon-and-coming king who will rule forever. Amen? There's not two Messiahs. There's just one. Interesting. Is that what Jesus was communicating? No way to know for sure, but it popped in my head, so that may be a Holy Spirit thing. Who knows? What Jesus says to the crowd here in John 12, he also says to you and me, You're going to have this light for just a little while longer. So walk while you still have the light before darkness overtakes you. Put your trust in the light while you still have it so that you may become sons of the light. Well, let's pick up where we left off. Let's pick up in verse 31 here in John chapter 12 and go ahead and finish the chapter. Beginning in verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. So they neither can see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. There's so much in this great passage. Look at verse 37. I think it's a really sad verse. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Isn't that sad? Sadly, there are some people who are so stubborn in their unbelief. They won't believe in Jesus no matter how much we try to convince them. They'll ignore all the evidence. They'll reject all the invitations to church. Even when it becomes clear to them that their life is in the toilet and their way of doing things is a dead end, they'll still stubbornly cling to their unbelief anyway. That was true in Jesus' day, and it's true in our day. John spends a few verses here in verses 38 through 43 drawing our attention to a couple of Old Testament scriptures that prophesied their stubborn unbelief. John quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1, in verse 38 here. And if you look at verse 40, that's a quote of Isaiah 6, verse 10. And it's that verse, Isaiah 6.10, that really ruffles a lot of Christian feathers. It really ruffles our theology a bit, because look again at what it says, Isaiah 6 10. Speaking about God, hardening a heart. That he somehow sticks spiritual wax in ears and somehow puts blinders over their eyes a God who closes spiritual eyes a God who hardens spiritual hearts that doesn't jive with our theology about our loving and gracious God does it and so as Christians we wrestle with those verses but I want you to think about the sun we're very familiar with the sun here in the high desert amen So imagine a hot summer day, no clouds in the sky, the sun is just blazing down, it's 110 degrees on the concrete. If you take a ball of wax and place it on a hot Victorville sidewalk in the middle of July in the dead of the day, what's going to happen to that ball of wax? It's going to melt, right? You take that same hot sidewalk on that same hot summer day and you put a glob of fresh moist clay. What's going to happen to that clay? It's going to harden. It's the exact same sun, the exact same conditions, but what softens wax hardens clay, right? It's as simple as that. The clay doesn't blame the sun when it hardens. It's in its nature to harden when it's exposed to the sun. That's what clay does. And the same is true of a stubborn unbeliever. It's in his or her nature to harden when exposed to the Son of God. It's not the Son of God's fault. It's the stubborn unbeliever's fault. Amen. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, by hardening, Scripture declares Jesus solidified the resolve of each rebellious man or woman to pursue the evil that was deeply embedded in his or her heart. Don't miss this. If you have rebellion against God and sin deeply embedded in, In your heart. When you come to the cross, you will not be softened, you will be hardened. When you come to Jesus, it will only harden you if you stubbornly refuse to let go of that sin in your heart. That's why we have to come to Jesus Christ humbly. When we come humbly, that cross that hardens clay suddenly becomes the cross that softens wax. That's what the Son of God does. He softens us when we come to Him humbly. In verses 44 through 50, John records one of Jesus' last public teachings before being crucified. And in it, Jesus reiterates five timeless truths that he has taught us over the first 12 chapters of John. Five timeless truths that he's communicated to the crowds during his first three years of ministry. And I want, in closing, just quickly look at each of these truths that he shares. In verses 44 through 50. First of all, truth number one we find in verses 44 and 45. Please read this with me. To see and believe in Jesus is to see and believe in God the Father. Because God the Father and God the Son are one. Is this a new insight? It shouldn't be because he's repeating an insight he's already shared. Back in chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus told his critics, I tell you the truth, his son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. So we ask the question, was Jesus a copycat? And the answer is yes. He was a copycat in the most beautiful sense of the word. He was a copycat. He said it himself. I do exactly what I see the father doing. Exactly. So whatever the father is doing, the son will be doing. Whatever the son will be doing is exactly what the father would be doing. Many people over the years have said they wanted to see what God looks like with skin on. And Jesus says, here I am. I'm exactly what God the father looks like with skin on. Although they are separate persons within the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son are indistinguishable. Let that sink in. God the Father and God the Son are indistinguishable. Amen? Amen. Never forget that. Truth number two is in verse 46. Read this with me, please. Jesus is the spiritual light of the world, and it is belief that flips your switch from darkness to light. I heard like two people reading that. Let's read that again. Jesus is the spiritual light of the world, and it is belief that flips your switch from darkness to light. Here, Jesus reiterates his teaching from John 8, as Jesus was at the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, the huge candelabras were there in the court of the women, and Jesus is teaching, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And during his teaching there in chapter 8, Jesus makes it clear that belief is the key to entering Christ's light. There in chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus told the crowd, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. So Jesus is the spiritual light of the world, and it is belief in Him that flips your switch from darkness to light. If you're tired of being in the darkness, your first step is belief. You've got to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? How about truth number three? We find this in verses 47 and 48. Read this with me, please. Jesus didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. But make no mistake about it. If you reject Christ, you are self-condemned and will be found guilty on judgment day. Here Jesus reiterates the truth from judgment verses we mentioned earlier. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 12.31, now is the time for judgment on this world. So this truth should be pretty clear to you by now. Hopefully, as we've said it a few times, it's sunk in. Jesus offers you grace and mercy on the cross, not judgment and condemnation. But if you reject his mercy and grace... What will be left for you is judgment and condemnation. If you reject Jesus' grace and mercy, there's nothing left for you but God's judgment. Truth number four we find in verse 49. Read it with me, please. To hear Jesus' teaching is to hear God the Father's teaching. They are what? One One and the same. So, this is very similar to truth number one, but notice the difference. In truth number one, Jesus says, I do exactly what the father would do here in truth. Number four, Jesus says, I say exactly what the, the father would say. He's repeating what he had taught us in chapter seven, that God, the father's teaching is the spitting image of Jesus, the son's teaching. He makes it clear that he says exactly what the father says. So to hear Jesus speak is to hear God, the father speak. Amen. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that reassuring? What's God the Father's word for me? Just look at what Jesus' word for me is. Because they're exactly the same. And interestingly, vice versa is correct as well. So when you speak to Jesus, you are speaking to God the Father as well. Isn't that cool? When you pray to Jesus, well, who should we pray to? Should we pray to Jesus or pray to God the Father? Yes. You pray to Jesus? That's okay. Like kids oftentimes are taught. Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Well... Technically, they should be praying, dear God, the father, dear father in heaven. Technically, is that true? Yes. But Jesus and the father are one. So if the kids praying, dear Jesus, that's fine. You're talking to Jesus. You're talking to God, the father. You're talking to God, the father. You're talking to Jesus. They are different individuals within the Trinity, but together they are one. Still blows my mind, but it's true. To speak to one is to speak to the other. Finally, truth number five from verse 50, say that with me, embracing Jesus's commands to believe in him and follow him leads to what leads to eternal life. Amen. Back in John six, a day after Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowd asked him in verse 28, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus gives them an answer in John six twenty-nine: to do the work that God desires. I need you to lay down your life as a martyr. Is that what he says? It's not what he says there in order to do the work that God requires. I need you to tie the hundred percent of your income to the church. Okay, make sure you put general fund on the memo line, too. That's what he says there, right? If you want to do the work that God requires, I need you to feed 100 orphans. I need you to take care of 200 widows in their distress. Is that what he says? No, Jesus in John 629 says the work of God is this to believe in the one that he has sent. And that does, it blows my mind, the word believe is used eight times in these final 14 verses of John chapter 12. Do you think perhaps Jesus is trying to tell us something? Believe, 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 believe. He's trying to tell us something. And so you get to the end of your life and you look back and you say, I fed a hundred orphans. I took care of 200 widows. I surrendered my body as a martyr. I gave 100% of my income to the church. You get to the end of your life and you've done all those wonderful works. But if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ and lived a life that reflects that belief and trust in him, then you have failed. Jesus says the number one work that you can do as a follower of me is to believe in me. You believe in me. And as you begin walking down that narrow road to eternal life in heaven, every step of the way, every decision you make, every word that you speak, everything you even think, make sure it's drowned in belief. It's in belief. It's in belief. The work of God is this. To believe in the one that he has sent. So, if you are truly believing in Jesus and following in Jesus' footsteps, congratulations. You're on the road to heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your wonderful challenge today. To walk in obedience to your commands. To walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, I thank you for dropping the cross smack dab in the middle of those train tracks with that freight train bearing in on us. There was nothing I could do in my own good works to stop that oncoming train. I could surrender my body to the flames. I could help the orphans. I could help the widows. But I'm going to get plowed down by that runaway train were it not for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for stopping the oncoming train of judgment and wrath. And we pray for ourselves that we would walk by faith and cling to that cross in, in humble belief every day of our lives. And we pray, O oh God, for our family members and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, O oh God, who are stubborn in their unbelief and they come to the cross and they reject it. And we invite them to church and they reject it. Lord, I pray that you would soften hard hearts and open closed minds because we cannot do it, only you can. And I pray that those around us that we've been praying for their salvation, that they would finally come to the cross, even this week, come to the cross and be saved for the glory of God. And I pray if there's anyone here who's never accepted Christ, that you'd pray right now, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Please come into my life and wash me clean. I commit my life to you, my Savior and my Lord, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.